I love this story. It's a story of twists and turns, highs and lows. When it begins, we're told about a man who has it all. Naaman is a renowned warrior who has led the army of Aram to victory, a man who stands high in the king's favor, and it seems in God's favor as well. He's even described by the biblical writer as a great man. But as you've heard, Naaman has a problem. He's suffering from leprosy. Here I should say that Naaman's skin disease is, was probably not the debilitating illness that we now know as Hansen's disease. But that, be, that being said, there, whatever was wrong with his skin was probably painful and undoubtedly unsightly. Though we don't know about the culture of Aram in Israel, such a disease would have rendered Naaman ritually unclean and a social outcast, the object of others' scorn or disgust. He is vulnerable and he knows it. It seems that Naaman has almost given up hope for ever being cured when a slave girl in his household offers him a lifeline. Now let's think about this unexpected situation for a moment. Naaman is a general in Aram's army. The girl is an Israelite captive. He is male. She is female. He is high in the king's favor. She is the lowest of low, a slave. He is a great man. She is a nobody. To speak up, to dare to offer advice to her master could cost her dearly. Yet it is this nobody who sets off a series of events that will lead to Naaman's healing. We aren't told why this girl decided to tell Naaman's wife about Elijah. Was she defending her country's honor by boasting of a prophet that could do something that no one else in Aram could do? Did she feel sorry for Naaman's wife? Was she acting out of compassion for Naaman's suffering? Whatever the reason, her words give new hope first to his wife and then to Naaman himself. Again, something unexpected happens. Naaman goes to his king to ask permission to go to Israel. And now the king of Aram could have said, just laughed in his face and said, yeah, right, a wild goose chase. No, you can't go. He could have refused to let this most valuable soldier take the risk of entering enemy territory and endangering the truce that was between those two countries. But to our surprise, the king agrees that Naaman should go. And conveniently ignoring the mention of a prophet, he sends him forth with a letter of introduction to Israel's king. Naaman leaves with a great entourage bearing not only the royal letter, but expensive gifts to pay for his healing. Now things get interesting. When Naaman presents his letter to the king, the king reacts violently Tearing his clothing as dismay, he cries, Am I God to give life or death that this man says word to me to cure a man of leprosy? He immediately suspects that the letter is a ruse designed to give Aram's king an excuse to attack. Can't imagine how Naaman felt in that moment. Crestfallen, angry, betrayed. To the rescue comes the man of God, Elijah. You can just see him shaking his head when he hears of the king's tantrum. Send him to me so that he may learn there is a prophet in Israel, he tells the king. 
So Naaman gets directions and heads to Elijah's place. Imagine this procession of chariots and horses arriving in a cloud of dust in front of Elijah's house. For a moment, Naaman stands outside, unsure of the proper protocol. Should he go to Elijah or Elijah come to him? Surely the latter. He was, after all, an important man, a man of wealth and power. Surely Elijah will come out to greet him. Besides, he's willing to pay, and pay handsomely, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 suits of fine clothing. He wonders how Elijah will affect the cure, what incantations and rituals he will use. What is taking him so long? Finally, the door opens. But instead of Elijah, a servant comes out with a message. Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Then the servant goes back inside. No rituals, no incantations, no Elijah. Just go, take a bath. How would you have felt? Naaman is astonished. This is not at all what he expected. And he gets mad, really mad. This is an insult. Surely for me, the prophet should have come out and done something. Why should I walk it, wash in some muddy creek here in Israel? The rivers of Aaron are better than any river in Israel. I'll go wash in them. This has been a complete waste of time. I'm going home. And he stomps off to his chariot. Once again, the unexpected happens. Naaman's servants have watched Naaman in despair, and they decide to take what could have been a very big risk, to approach their furious master with their own advice. Father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, you would have done it, wouldn't you? All he said was to wash. Why not give it a try? What they didn't need to say was, You've got nothing to lose. But that was true. The cures that Naaman had endured, his wealth, even his royal connections could not give Naaman what he needed. He truly had nothing to lose, not even his dignity at that point. And so once again, Naaman heeds the advice of a servant. He goes to the Jordan River, takes off his clothes, and holding his nose, wades into this murky water. Seven times he washes himself in that water, according to the word of the man of God. Seven times he goes under, and seven times he comes up. And then, after taking a long, slow breath, only then does he dare to look at his body. And to his amazement and wonder, his flesh was restored like the flesh of young boy, And he is finally, unbelievably, wonderfully clean. His morning turned to dancing. He splashes and yells, giddy with joy. His servants laugh at his antics, but Naaman doesn't care. He is well. He is well. Then something truly unexpected happens. Instead of getting in his chariot and heading back to Aram, Naaman goes back to Elijah's house. 
This time the prophet does come out to meet him, and Naaman says to him, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Did you hear that? Naaman's bath in the Jordan brought about something more than just a healing. It was a conversion, a complete change of mind and heart. Like the psalmist, Naaman sings God's praise. And Elijah's. But though Naaman offers gifts to Elijah, the prophet will not accept even one coin, for he knows he is not the one who healed Naaman. The Lord gave Naaman victory, and the Lord healed him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then comes an odd request. Please, Elijah, let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer sacrifices to any god except the Lord. Naaman still thinks of God as a local deity who can only be worshipped on his own soil. And he also asks that God pardon him when he has to accompany the king to worship and bow down to an idol. I, I kind of wonder if Elijah hid a smile in that moment. He knows that God is the Lord of all creation and that soil from Israel is unnecessary. He knows, too, that God sees our hearts, not just, not just our outer actions. And so he says to Elijah, go in peace. This story is full of twists and turns, highs and lows. Naaman goes from the high of a military victory to the low of a devastating illness. He rises in the king's favor, but is brought bow by illness. Up and down he goes. The slave girl's claim and his king's support raises hope, only to have those hopes dashed by the despair of the king of Israel. Elijah's invitation raises his hopes again, but the pride that he wears like an armor lays him alone. It is only after this roller coaster of emotion dumps him to the ground that he submits and immerses himself up and down seven times in the Jordan River. Only then is he able to receive the gift of healing, the gift of the God of Israel. In this story, God works in unexpected ways through unexpected people to bring about Naaman's healing. Try as they might, the kings on their thrones in Aram and Israel are unable to help him, nor is he able to find relief through wealth or status or power. Instead, his agency comes, his healing comes through the agencies of those who have absolutely no power in and of themselves a slave girl, a prophet's messenger, servants. These unexpected instruments of God's grace are the ones who make it possible for Naaman to be healed. God has a way of doing this, of using the most unlikely people to make a difference. If you read through the Bible, you discover things like Moses, men like Moses, who was a fugitive from justice, and David, who was a shepherd boy, and Elijah himself, who started out not as a prophet, but as a plowman. The Bible is full of such unexpected people. Think of Mary, a young girl in the backwater of Nazareth, and John out in the wilderness calling people to follow Naaman's example and get washed up. And oh yes, 
that ragged band of men and women who followed an itinerant rabbi named Jesus. God used all of them to do amazing things, which says to me that we should be open to the possibility, I might even say the probability, that God can use us, even us, the people of El Segundo United Methodist Church, to make a difference in people's lives and in the world. God gives us the power to give hope, to offer encouragement, to share grace, and to change lives if only we will accept it. And God gives powers to others, maybe those whom we least expect to do the same for us. God is also unexpectedly patient with Naaman. I love the words of J. Mary Ludy. When Naaman doesn't get the attention he thinks it is due, God waits, letting him vent and strut. No lightning bolt consumes him in mid-rant. No disapproving angel descends. God waits until Naaman acquits himself of the odd human propensity to work against one's own good. And when, after stalking off, he relents, we see in him what God has seen all along, a man of faith. Grace has established a pulse in him, irregular perhaps, but not arrested by his unchecked rage. When he finally gives up, lets go, obeys his servants and washes in the water, there isn't a lot more healing for the river to do. All that remains is for Naaman to meet, knee-deep, the one who engineers his victories and presides over his life. Awash in the revelation, Naaman, a great man from the starts, becomes Yahweh's man for good. Yahweh has come a long, not Naaman has come a long, ragged way. The man who derided the stupid river in Israel now packs his mules with Israel's dirt so that at home he may worship on holy ground. Yes, God is patient with Naaman, and I think that God is unexpectedly patient with us. We are so much like Naaman. Sometimes it seems as though we do everything we can to get in God's way. We insist that we want to be faithful, to follow Jesus, to be guided by the Spirit, but then we complain that it's too hard, that we can't figure it out, and we give up. Debbie Thomas writes, It's amazing how often I needly complicate the Christian life. But what does God want me to do, I groan? What is God's will? How shall I hear God's voice and discern God's plan? Are the answers really all that hard, she writes? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Pray. Listen, learn, and love. Break the bread, drink the wine, bear the burden, share the peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's what we're called to do. And God patiently waits. You're so much like Naaman trying to make things up, trying to find our way when all the time God is patiently waiting 
for us to recognize who is really in charge. God is willing to let us muddle along, to listen to our questions and endure our anger until we are let ready, finally ready to let go of our pride and our fear and immerse ourselves in the river of God's grace and receive not only healing, but new life, a life of purpose and hope and unexpected joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.